Romans chapter 9, you could say here that the Apostle Paul is becoming very personal as we enter into this section of Romans. He is, in a sense, opening his heart to those he's writing to, and he is sharing with the readers of this letter uh, the burden of his heart. And that becomes very apparent, okay? Uh, listen to what it says. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Becomes very apparent, doesn't it, in those verses that Paul had um, a very strong heart desire for his fellow Israelites to gain a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 3, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now certainly Paul would have realized that such a thing couldn't, couldn't be possible for him to be accursed from his brethren, but he is just holding that out as an example and an illustration of how pressing upon his soul this burden was for his kinsmen. And there's no doubt about who he has in view here when he calls them his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites, in other words. He had a pressing desire on his heart for them to gain a saving interest in Jesus Christ. So much so, it was as if he would cut himself, off, cut himself off from Christ if that would contribute to their salvation. And though that couldn't be possible on Paul's part, yet I can't help but note that there is great Christ-likeness in that statement because Christ actually could and did become accursed in order that we might be saved. Now we add to our reading here from chapter 10, if you would, in Romans. And here again, along these same lines, is this pressing burden on Paul's heart. Listen to what he writes, Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And here again, it becomes very apparent who he has in mind. He is not speaking here merely of spiritual Israel. We know that there is a spiritual Israel. In fact, Paul will develop that very truth in the course of chapters 9 and 10. 
that it's not as though the word of God has not taken effect. They're not all Israel who are of Israel, he writes in chapter 9. But his heart's desire, his burden, is for his kinsmen after the flesh. And like I say, it's no doubt that they're the ones he has in mind because they were the ones that were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were the ones that were seeking, verse 3, to establish their own righteousness in their ignorance. And because of their ignorance and their futile endeavor to try to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. In particular, they failed to submit themselves to the imputed righteousness of God. I know I preached on this text in the past and it pointed out in Romans 10 and verse 3 that you actually find three different kinds of righteousness described in that verse. There is what you might call God's essential righteousness. They were ignorant of that. They were ignorant of just how righteous a God they were dealing with. Had they known, had they any clue of how righteous God actually is, they would not have thought for a moment that they measured up to that righteousness. But because they were ignorant of God's essential righteousness, they were deceived into thinking that they could establish their own righteousness. There's the second kind, self-righteousness. And you cannot gain your way into heaven through your own self-righteousness. That's largely the point that Paul makes in this epistle. Okay, And as a result of their ignorance of God's essential righteousness, their own attempt to establish self-righteousness, they failed to submit to the righteousness, and here's the third kind, you could call it the righteousness of the gospel, which is Christ's imputed righteousness, a gift of righteousness. A righteousness outside of ourselves that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. A righteousness that once received by faith gives to the believer a perfect standing with God that is as good and as secure as Christ's standing with God. Because it's his righteousness that is imputed to the believer and received by faith faith alone. Now, I won't take the time to uh, develop the theme of God's sovereignty in these chapters. That theme is developed in these chapters perhaps more thoroughly than any other part of the New Testament. Okay? I will only make the point that even though God's sovereignty is so emphasized in Romans 9, and in Romans 10, I suppose you could add Romans 11 as well, we see nevertheless that a right understanding of God's sovereignty does not quench a zeal for the salvation of souls, and indeed it only contributes to it. And that brings us now to uh, the topic that I want to cover from history, John Calvin. Of course, you are familiar. I'm sure you have heard of John Calvin. You're familiar, perhaps, with Calvin's Institutes. One of the great regrets that Dr. Cairns expressed to me one time with regard to his uh, um, 
being in charge of the seminary is that he didn't require his students to read Calvin's Institutes. Um, you should read those. Uh, actually, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, you can actually get a, a, a reading schedule that takes you through Calvin's Institutes. You're familiar with Bible reading schedules? There's actually a Calvin's Institute reading schedule if you would care to um, take it and make your way through it and get through the Institutes in a year. But at any rate, I, I'm borrowing here uh, now uh, at, at some length uh, from a book that Joel Beakey has written some while back. Uh, the title of the book is Puritan Reformed Spirituality. And in the third chapter of this book, he has a chapter that goes under this heading, John Calvin, Teacher and Practitioner of Evangelism. I love that title because Calvinists, you may be aware of this, Calvinists are accused quite often of not having any evangelistic zeal at all. If the whole thing is a matter of God's sovereign decree and predestination, well, God must not need you and God must not need me. The whole thing's going to come to pass in accordance with his decree. So what's the point of prayer and what's the point of evangelism? You ever heard those objections to Calvinism? Um, I have. And really, and interesting to note that those that would level that kind of objection uh, against Calvinism, if I can use that, that term, they must not be very familiar with what Paul has written in Romans chapter 9. One of the most Calvinistic chapters in all the Bible, so to speak, in that it reflects uh, the theology of Calvin. I should say, it'd be, be truer uh, to history to say that John Calvin reflects the theology of Paul, not that Paul reflects the theology of Calvin. But if you read through Romans 9, you can't help but see that Paul did believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation, and Paul had a very heavy, pressing burden for souls to be saved. The same could be said of John Calvin. He had a pressing burden on his heart after the pattern of Paul to see souls saved. Uh, Dr. Beakey notes here, to assess Calvin's view of evangelism correctly, we must understand what Calvin himself had to say on the subject. Second, we must look at the entire scope of Calvin's evangelism, both in his teaching and in his practice. We can find scores of references to evangelism in Calvin's institutes, commentaries, sermons, and letters. Then we can look at Calvin's evangelistic work. And you discover when you look at his evangelistic fervor, he had a real burden for souls to be saved. I remember several years ago listening to an LP vinyl record album. You remember those? Some of you would remember those. You might be old enough for that. They're coming back, I'm told. And uh, anyway, this particular album was um, uh, a series of recorded sermons uh, 
from Bible Conference at Bob Jones University. And among the speakers on this LP album was Dr. Ian Paisley, who brought a study of John Calvin. Imagine that. It's a wonder they didn't yank him off the platform. But uh, uh, no, actually, John Calvin, or John Calvin, Ian Paisley and Bob Jones were the best of friends, theological differences notwithstanding, uh, largely because of the stand that each one took against apostasy. Did you know that when Ian Paisley was in prison, he served a six-month prison term for protesting against uh, the downgrade of the Irish Presbyterian Church. And while he was in prison, Bob Jones Jr. came with a party of folks from uh, the university, and they bestowed an honorary PhD on Ian Paisley while he was in prison, had the ceremony right there uh, in the jail. So best of friends they were. But anyway, uh, in this message by Ian Paisley on John Calvin, I remember him making the remark that you could find Calvin going door to door, knocking on doors, sharing the gospel with people, inviting them to come to Christ. So his theology was no hindrance to his evangelistic zeal. And in fact, uh, that theology rightly understood should contribute to our evangelistic zeal. But um, continuing here from Beaky a little bit, Calvin, the teacher of evangelism, how was Calvin's teaching evangelistic? In what way did his instruction obligate believers to seek the conversion of all people, those within the church as well as those in the world outside it? Along with other reformers, Calvin taught evangelism in a general way by earnestly proclaiming the gospel and by reforming the church according to biblical requirements. More specifically, Calvin taught evangelism by focusing on the universality of Christ's kingdom and the responsibility of Christians to help extend that kingdom. How will the triune God extend his kingdom throughout the world? Calvin asked. And his answer involves both God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The gospel, Calvin writes, does not fall from the clouds like rain. It is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. Jesus teaches us that God uses our work and summons us to be his instruments in cultivating his field. The power to save rests with God, but he reveals his salvation through the preaching of the gospel. God's evangelism causes our evangelism. We are his co-workers, and he allows us to participate in the honor of constituting his own son governor over the whole world. We go a little further. According to Calvin, this joining together of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in evangelism 
offers the following lessons. And here is some of the greatest advice you can receive, I think, when it comes to this practice of evangelism. Number one, as Reformed evangelists, we must pray. We must pray daily for the extension of Christ's kingdom. We're taught that, aren't we, by Christ himself. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that requires the work of God's Spirit in the hearts of sinners, bringing them to Christ. As Calvin says, we must daily desire that God gather churches unto himself from all parts of the earth, since it pleases God to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes, we must pray for the conversion of the heathen. Calvin writes, It ought to be the great object of our daily wishes that God would collect churches for himself from all the countries of the earth, that he would enlarge their numbers, enrich them with gifts, and establish a legitimate order among them. By daily prayer for God's kingdom to come, we profess ourselves servants and children of God, deeply committed to his reputation. So, lesson number one, pray. And you know, if we recognize that God is sovereign in salvation and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then we will feel uh, a deeper need to pray than we will to try to equip ourselves with um, the so-called evangelistic programs that are out there. And I'm not going to necessarily uh, disparage um, all of the advice and help you can get from evangelistic programs. I'm just going to say that at the end of the day, we are dependent upon God, and that should drive us to prayer. Um, Point number two, okay, there are three of these points here. Uh, when it comes to uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility and evangelism. Lesson number two. Lesson number one was pray. Listen to lesson number two. We must not become discouraged by a lack of visible success and evangelistic effort, but pray on. I love that. What does that tell you? Lesson number two, pray Lesson one, pray. Lesson two, pray. Pray on, okay? Don't be discouraged by a lack of visible success. Our Lord exercises the faith of his children, and that he doth not out of hand perform the things which he hath promised them. And this thing ought specially to be applied to the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin writes, If God pass over a day or a year without giving fruit, it is not for us to give over, but we must in the meanwhile pray and not doubt, but that he heareth our voice. We must keep praying, believing that Christ shall manifestly exercise the power given to him for our salvation and for that of the whole world. Pray on and don't be discouraged. I remember Dr. Cairns once made the remark to us, that when it comes to sorting things out on the day of judgment, there will not be any one single soul that can take complete credit for the salvation of anybody. We will discover that it is a process that many Christians may have contributed to. And part of that process 
includes prayer. I know I've shared this with you, but I still recall it so vividly. Back before I was a Christian, uh, I worked in Madison, Wisconsin for the Dane County Department of Social Services, of all things. I had a very simple job, a clerical job of sorts, and I remember one particular assignment that was given to me was to open up these envelopes, applications, I suppose, for government aid. Uh, my assignment was to open them and file them alphabetically. That's all I had to do. And I remember opening one such envelope, and I found in it a gospel track. And I remember the content of that track. The front of it said, check off all the things you think you need to do to get to heaven. And then there's a whole list of things with these boxes next to them in a column. Uh, keep the Ten Commandments. Go to church. Be baptized, etc., etc. Uh, check one, check them all. And then on the back side, uh, you, you read it and you discover, no, none of those things are going to get you into heaven. And it gave the gospel, how it is Christ that saves, and, and, and not giving uh, you know, heed for salvation to any of these other things on the front. Now, I didn't get saved that day. But on the other hand, I never forgot that gospel track either. A seed was sown in my heart that day, which would eventually, oh, I want to say probably two, three years down the road, would have come to fruition when I did eventually gain a saving interest in Jesus Christ. So pray on. Don't be discouraged. Uh, you don't know what you're accomplishing. I know I've told you the story of a very good friend of mine, uh, Tim Williams. Um, studying to be a Jesuit priest. He was under such a heavy load of guilt that he made the decision to commit suicide. He was on his way to a river in Alaska where he lived with the determination to throw himself in the river and take his own life. On his way to the river, he found a gospel track in the snow. And he came to Christ instead of killing himself. I tell you what, in the years that I knew Tim, uh, you would never find him bashful about handing out gospel tracts. He knew the potential of what could happen because he had experienced it in his own life. Okay? So, the lessons coming from divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Number one, pray. Number two, pray on. And don't be discouraged. Number three, we must work diligently for the extension of Christ's kingdom, knowing that our work will not be in vain. No such thing, folks, as a vain witness for Jesus Christ. You may not see the impact of it. You may not see immediate fruit from it. But we do have God's word that tells us his word does not return to him void. And you know, one of the things that is accomplished every time you give out a gospel witness is that that sinner to whom you are speaking, you make it more difficult for him to suppress the knowledge of God that is intuitively stamped on his heart. Paul tells us that earlier in Romans chapter 1, who knowing the judgment of God, he writes, 
that they which do such things are worthy of death. They know it. They know the truth of God. They know their accountability to God. Don't expect them to admit that to you because Paul also says that it is their constant uh, activity to try to suppress that knowledge and when you give out a gospel witness, whether you can see it or not, you're making that suppression process on their part more difficult by giving them gospel seeds. No such thing as a vain witness for Christ, even though you might not see uh, accomplished in it what you would hope to see. It might not be uh, your task to bring in the harvest in that particular moment. I've had an interesting discussion among the students in my seminary class along these lines. I pointed out to them that something else is accomplished every time you give out a gospel witness, and that is uh, you make that person the more accountable to God. Okay, we are a saver of life unto life to those that are saved, of death unto death to those that perish. You make them the more accountable to God. You, you make their lost condition the more inexcusable. And that is part of the task in evangelism. So we work diligently for the extension of Christ's kingdom Okay, uh, we are called by the Lord on this condition that everyone should afterwards strive to lead others to the truth, to restore the wandering to the right way, to extend a helping hand to the fallen, to win over those that are without. Moreover, it is not enough for every man to be busy uh, with other ways of serving God. Our zeal must extend yet further to the drawing of other men. We must do everything we are capable of to draw all men on earth to God. He goes on to list a number of reasons why we must evangelize. Calvin offers the following. One, God commands us to do so. Two, God leads us by example. Three, we have a desire to glorify God. True Christians yearn to extend God's truth everywhere that God may be glorified. Next, it is our desire to please God. As Calvin writes, it is a sacrifice well-pleasing to God to advance the spread of the gospel. To five students who were sentenced to death for preaching in France, Calvin wrote, Seeing that God employs your life in so worthy a cause, as is the witness of the gospel, doubt not that it must be precious to him. You can actually buy, you know, a multi-volume set of Calvin's letters and tracts. I never did get the full set. I got an abridged version that contains some of the letters. And among those letters is this one written to five people arrested in France. France was not all that open to the gospel in the days of the Reformation. And here were five men that were trained under Calvin, returned to France, knowing the dangers that awaited them, willing to face the dangers, nevertheless arrested and sentenced to death. And that sentence was carried out 
But before it was, Calvin did have occasion to write to them, to encourage them on how precious was their effort in the sight of God. Next, we have a duty to God. It is very just that we should labor to further the progress of the gospel. Um, after this, we have a duty to our fellow sinners. And Paul recognizes that duty. If you uh, have Romans opened up in front of you, see if I can find the reference. I believe it's in chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Here is a debt that you accrue and that I accrue. Now, in a sense, our debts are paid. Our sin debt has been paid by Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Here's a debt you never could pay by any effort that you would exert to try to pay it. Christ has paid it in full. And so that debt is taken out of the way, but it is replaced, in a sense, with another debt. This is a debt that arises out of gratitude. We owe to God and to our fellow men a debt of gratitude to sow the good seed of the gospel on every occasion that we find, okay? And that's the next point here. We are grateful to God. Evangelism should always be exerted in the power of thanksgiving. Um, never as uh, a, a debt, in a sense, to try to earn something from God. We never could earn anything from God. And why would you try to earn that which is freely given? in salvation, but a debt of gratitude. Uh, out of thanksgiving to God, I want others to know about him, to know about his salvation. Okay? So that is Calvin's view on evangelism. I, you, you couldn't exactly call John Calvin a hyper-Calvinist, could you? Uh, he believed in evangelism, and he practiced it. The next section of this article has to deal with Calvin, the practitioner of evangelism. And Beakey goes into some detail here to explain all the sermons that Calvin preached uh, in and around Geneva. Three churches in Geneva. Uh, Calvin uh, made his way through them all, uh, all the time placing an emphasis on salvation Beyond that, he would endeavor to reach the people uh, in Geneva itself. Beyond that, he had a burden for Europe to be reached. I referenced already those souls in France that were sentenced to death. What I did not know until I read this article by Dr. Beakey is that uh, Calvin's evangelistic efforts actually extended all the way across the ocean into the nation of Brazil. Can you imagine that? I didn't know Brazil was even known at that time in the world, okay? Um, evangelism in Brazil. Calvin knew there were nations and people who had not yet heard the gospel, and he keenly felt the burden. 
though there is no record that he ever came into contact with the newly discovered world of Asian and African paganism, Calvin was involved with the Indians of South America through the Genevan mission to Brazil. And he cites some of the people that had gone to Brazil. So uh, don't let anyone ever try to suggest to you that Calvin was not filled with evangelistic zeal. I'll bring our study to a close by looking at some concluding lessons that come from Calvin's example. Some lessons from him include, one, look more to Christ. Rest more in his perseverance, for your perseverance rests in his. Seek grace to imitate his patience under affliction. Your trials may alarm you, but they will not destroy you. Your crosses are God's way to royal crowning. Next, and I think this is an important one, take the long view. Seek to live in light of eternity rather than in the light of the moment. The Chinese bamboo tree appears to do absolutely nothing for four years. Then during its fifth year, it suddenly shoots up 90 feet in 60 days. Would you say that this tree grew in six weeks or in five years? If you follow the Lord in obedience, you will generally see your efforts rewarded eventually. Remember, however, that God never asked you to produce growth. He only asked you to continue working. Next, realize that times of discouragement are often followed by times of revival. While we predict the church's ruin, God is preparing for her renewal. The church will survive through all time and come to glory while the ungodly will come to ruin. So gird up the loins of your mind and stand fast, for the Lord is greater than both Apollyon and the times. Look to God, not man, for the church belongs to God. Next, rely on God. Though friends may fail you, God will not. The Father is worthy, Christ is worthy, the Holy Spirit is worthy. Seeing that you have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who rules from the heavens, draw near to him in faith and wait upon him, and he will renew your strength. We are not all Calvins. Actually, none of us can be Calvins. But we can keep working by God's grace, looking to Jesus for daily strength. If Calvin, one man, did so much good for the cause of evangelism, shouldn't we ask God to also use our efforts making them fruitful by his blessing. I'll leave you with the quote here from Robert Murray McShane. Let your life speak even louder than your sermons. Let your life be the life of your ministry. Be exemplary on and off the pulpit and leave the fruits of your ministry to our sovereign God who makes no mistakes and who never forsakes the work of his hands. Oh, may we, by our lives and by our words, be used in a great way to further the kingdom of God and the building of his church. I dare say, and, and, and I'll, I'll leave you with uh, 
what could be a, a practical tip. Uh, carry a small Bible or New Testament with you. And never be ashamed, say, at the lunch table. Pull it out and read it, okay? I know you can get your Bible on your phone. But if you're reading your Bible on your phone, all people are going to say is, there's another person who's addicted to his phone, okay? If you have actually a hard copy of the Bible so people know uh, from a distance, uh, that must be a, a Christian, that person reads his Bible. Uh, get one of those little Gideon pocket Bibles that has the New Testament and the Psalms in it and spend time reading it. And you might be surprised uh, that God will draw people to you out of curiosity of nothing else. What are you reading? What do you make of it? And so on. But at any rate, practical tip there, if you will. Calvin was an evangelist. Let's make sure that we honor our Reformation fathers by being evangelistic in our outlook and in our zeal. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? Let's all pray. O oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to be faithful. And Lord, may we be fruitful in our every evangelistic endeavor. We pray, Lord, thou wilt help us not to grow discouraged when we don't see immediate results the way we would want to. We know, Lord, that we live in the kind of culture that expects immediate results. We're so convenience-oriented. Lord, help us patiently to sow the good seed of thy word and to be seeking thy face in prayer for the extension of thy kingdom and the building of thy church, knowing as we do that in due time, we shall reap if we don't grow weary in well-doing. So hear our prayers and help us to draw strength from great men of the past and especially to draw strength from the truth of thy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.